0: and reading, at their very best, are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a
1: dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the
0: couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to
1: learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. This week, we wanted to revisit an interview we did with Cassie Chambers. Ron Howard's movie adaptation of J.D. Vance's memoir, Hillbilly Elegy, starring Amy Adams and Glenn Close, has sparked quite a debate bordering on controversy in America this fall about Vance's assertion as to the motivations and plight of Appalachian people. Many authors from this region have wanted to push back on that a bit to show that Appalachia is complex and not merely a place to rise above. We welcome Cassie Chambers as a guest back in March 2020, just as COVID was starting to hit this country in full force. Her memoir, Hill Women, was written as a response in her own way to Vance's memoir about a different view of the Appalachian experience from a woman's perspective. Cassie's had some more exciting news in 2020 as she went on to win a seat on the Louisville Metro Council, as well as becoming a visiting professor at the University of Louisville Law School
0: listeners, as you social distance, now is the perfect time to read and also listen to our podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and download past episodes you may have missed the first time around. And we would be thrilled if you left us a rating, or review on Apple Podcasts or our Facebook page. If you write a review, we'll read it on the air. Our guest today grew up in poverty in eastern Kentucky, but attended Yale and Harvard, received her law degree, and came back to Kentucky to work for the Legal Aid Society, helping at-risk women in her home state. Cassie Chambers has also written a memoir called Hill Women, Finding Family and a Way Forward in the Appalachian Mountains, about life and culture in Owsley County through the lens of three generations of women in her own family. Her book came out in January of this year. Newsweek has named it a must-read book to savor this spring, and Publishers Weekly called it a passionate memoir. Cassie talks to us about her favorite book series from childhood that she still rereads as an adult, why she felt the women of Appalachia specifically need their stories told and what compelled her to write it, and why she thinks more women don't run for office and why that needs to change.
1: Our guest today is Cassie Chambers, who is the author of a book titled Hill Women, Finding Family and a Way Forward in the Appalachian Mountains. She's also an attorney and mom of a seven-month-old. So we're so glad to have you. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me.
0: So tell us a
2: little bit about
0: you, where you grew up.
2: So I was born in the mountains of eastern Kentucky, spent my childhood largely in a little town called Berea, also spent a lot of time in Owsley County, which is sort of near coal country, uh, former tobacco country, and did what I call the boomerang, where I went away to school and then boomeranged back to Kentucky and ended up in Louisville, kind of fell in love with Louisville when I was a law student, Um, had always known Louisville growing up, come here for uh, summer camps or school trips occasionally, but really fell in love with it when I was in law school. School. So what were
1: your childhood reading and writing habits like? Were you a, a kid who loved to read and write or did that come later?
2: I did. I loved reading as a kid. You know I grew up in poverty and we didn't have a lot of money and so we couldn't afford air conditioning and so we used to go to the public library every day because that was a place that was air conditioned and so my mom would take me every day and we would read books there during the hottest part of the day and then check out books and take them home. So I grew up around public libraries and reading from a very early age.
1: Did you write too? I know
2: sometimes, you know, those go hand in hand, but but not always. I kept journals as a kid. And I went through a phase, I would say, where I liked creative writing, but I never really thought of myself as a writer until I decided to write this book. So it still is an interesting thing for me to think about to identify myself as a writer, because it's not a part of my identity that I've really feel like I've cultivated or had for very long. Did you have any favorite books? I loved the Anne of Green Gables series when I was growing up. I read all of them and pretty much everything by that author. And even now, I still like to reread the Anne of Green Gables books sometimes uh, when I'm at home in my childhood house and, you know, I would see them on my bookshelf. I'd be like, maybe I'll just spend a little little while reading these. Um, so it's amazing how those books really stick with you.
0: So tell us a little bit about your book. Can you summarize
2: it for us a bit? So my book tells the story of three generations of women in the Appalachian Mountains, my granny, my mom, and me, and it talks about how each of these generations of women tried to use education or whatever tools were at their disposal to do a little bit better for the next generation. It's really, I think, at its core, a book about women helping other women and families helping families and communities helping their own community. And so it sort of talks about how if you look at the arc of my life, I was born into poverty, I had the opportunity to go to Yale College and Harvard Law School. And that looks like an arc and some other pull yourself up by your bootstraps type narratives. But I talk about this book as the anti-bootstraps narrative because what I hope I've tried to do in the book is explain how that arc and that progress is more complicated than we think it is. And it's not any individual can't do it on their own. You really need a community and it takes generations for that to happen. So what was it that inspired you to write it? I think after the 2016 election, there were a lot of portrayals of Appalachia because it was so pivotal in the 2016 presidential election. And a lot of the portrayals that I saw of Appalachia did not square with my experience growing up there. A lot of people talk about moral failings of the people and of the culture, and I really thought about those as moral failings of systems that just hadn't been able to provide people there with the opportunities that they were entitled to, and so that got me thinking that, you know, I really should write something, I really, I feel like my perspective is different, and then in sort of a roundabout way, that ended up becoming the book, Hill Women.
0: So I want to read just a little passage that comes at the end of the introduction of your book and then ask you a question about it. This holler feels like home, and this house feels like family. There are women's stories here, stories of resilience, love, and strength. This community knows them well, but their echo hasn't reached far enough into the outside world. Instead, these tales have ricocheted within the mountains, growing more faint with time. I want to tell these stories because they matter, because I'm afraid that they will be forgotten, because they have the power to make the community visible. So my question is, did you feel or do you feel like the Appalachia that you know is invisible?
2: I think a lot of times people have an idea about what they think Appalachia is and they think of a society that is very patriarchal and very male dominated. And so I do think that a lot of the strength of the women and even just some of the more complexity in Appalachia, the fact that there is diversity there, diversity of opinion, diversity of race, all kinds of different diversity, I think that isn't seen. It's not our idea of what Appalachia is supposed to look like. And because it's an area that is sort of cut off from the rest of the world uh, in a lot of ways, like physically isolated by the mountains, and also just a marginalized community that their voices aren't heard loud enough sometimes. And so I think that was uh, another reason I wanted to write the book was to be able to make those communities more visible.
1: You know, it's interesting what you were just saying made me think of something that happened to me recently, which I think sort of relates to this conversation about women and how sometimes their power isn't seen. I was in a waiting room and HGTV was on. It was me and three other women. And it was one of these shows about decorating. And a girl, a little girl, the daughter of these two parents said something about, oh, well, mom will get her way. And all four of us just kind of snickered, but I could hear them and they could hear me. And it occurred to me, women know we have this power, but Getting that power beyond that room, beyond, you know, the home sometimes is a little bit of a struggle. Hearing you talk about that, and made me think about, you know, there is this rich power that women have that we haven't yet gotten to the point where that's as broadly known as what we all know it
2: is.
0: So I'm wondering why the focus on women of Appalachia as opposed to men and women of Appalachia?
2: I think that... The stories of the men have been told a lot, and I think that's what people think of when they think of Appalachia, Mm -hmm. and so women's voices just haven't been loud enough, I would say probably across all of America, but particularly coming out of that region, you know, women who live in poverty, women who live in poverty in the mountains, Uh, it's a community that you don't hear a lot from, and so I think it's important whenever there's an underrepresented group to try to find ways to magnify those voices.
1: So I'm curious about the writing because you are an attorney and you went to law school. And so you do a lot of writing in law school and as an attorney, but it's very different from the type of writing that is memoir writing. So can you talk a little bit about that whole process of taking like how you knew how to write and
2: making it a memoir? This is a lot more fun writing than legal <laughs> writing is. Um, What I tried to do when I was writing was tell the stories like I would tell them if I was just sitting down with a family member and recounting our family tales. And I think that it's a much easier way when, you know, for me, if I can say it out loud and have a conversation about it and tell the story orally, then I know how to write it. And so a lot of the prep work for writing the book was sitting down with family members and talking about our shared memories and learning about things about our family that I didn't know or clarifying things that I didn't know it's always interesting when you have those conversations the way that people's memories differ and the way people would swear you know granny's wedding dress was blue no it was brown and like both were so sure that they were right and so that for me those conversations were really helpful in the writing process.
1: Was that kind of your research? Having these conversations, would you consider that your research? And did you have to do any other kind of research in order to to write your memoir?
2: I really didn't. I tried to keep the book as organic as possible. I tried not to just go out and interview people just to get perspective, because I really wanted it to be women that I was connected to or people in my family were connected to a couple of times someone would say, Oh, you really have to talk to this person, and I would go and do it. But I tried by and large to keep it within the sphere of people that I organically knew. And I'd read stuff about Appalachia, you know, it's always been something I'm interested in that region and women there because that's been my life and that's been my background and that's been my family. And so I did go back to some of those books that had statistics and things like that. And you know, occasionally I would try to use statistics to bolster a point where I could. But by and large it's a book of stories and a book of anecdotes, and I recognize that it's limited because of that, but I also think that there's power in those types of stories as well.
0: One of the things that I really appreciated about your book is that you acknowledge both the positives and the negatives about the Appalachian area. I, I'm originally from Appalachia as well, not Kentucky, Appalachia. I'm from West Virginia and my, my mother's family are from the coal fields and her father and grandfather were coal miners. At times it feels like you're sort of working through a lot of the issues that are complicated in Appalachia while you're writing the book and work like along for the ride. Did you feel that way as you were writing it, that you were working it out in your head as you were writing it?
2: Yeah, I think I was reflecting on a lot of the way my thinking about my own family and my own past has evolved And when you're writing a memoir and you're back in those moments and you're talking about what you felt, then you're really reliving the emotional journey that you went through and coming to terms with things about identity and things about family. And so I do think that it's pretty rare to have an opportunity to sit and sort of reflect on not just your life, but also your family's lives. And so I think that's a really cool thing about the writing process. For me, I think it was maybe one of my favorite things was really getting to sit down and take a critical look at some of those things and settle on how I felt about a lot of stuff.
0: Yeah. You know, an example of this was talking about coal in the area and that from someone from the outside – Would think well why do they you know want to keep coal alive you know it's it's a dangerous job it causes black lung so many people killed you know in that occupation every year and it's dirty and it it pollutes the environment that they live in so why do they even want to keep that alive but again that's their livelihood those are the best-paying jobs that there are in the area so Appalachia is very complicated
2: yeah. And I think with coal, it's also such a source of identity. You know, even songs like I'm a coal miner's daughter. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of these jobs have been in families for generations. So I think it's also a source of pride for that reason, too.
1: You talk about your mom being the the first in her family to go to college, and then your dad also received higher education. And you say that they never put limits on you. And you didn't want to put limits on yourself, like compared to other family members who were maybe uncomfortable pushing ahead. How much do you think the idea of limits, even if it's self-imposed, is sort of a theme in your book?
2: I think the book talks a lot about what different communities think are possible and what they tell the next generation is possible. And so I think limits in that sense, it's definitely a thread that runs through the book. You know, what do we tell our children what do children grow up thinking is their path forward in life, how big or how small are their horizons? And is there value in horizons being large just for the sake of horizons being large? Can people legitimately choose to stay in the community that they grew up in and never leave? I think I've concluded, yeah, that's a legitimate choice for people in the mountains to decide to stay in the mountains. It's about having the opportunities available to them if they want to leave and making sure that everyone has those same opportunities. But yeah, I think in that sense, limits is definitely something that runs throughout the book. And I
0: could really relate to your idea of you personally feeling like you're straddling in between. That's the sense I got from reading your book, that part of you still wants to be able to be that person who can be in Owsley County, but also you have gone on and gotten higher education and you kind of want to move away and do something else. And it's hard to have that identity to be able to combine both.
2: Yeah, I've really become interested in the idea of identities and how we all have these different pieces of who we are in this writing process. Because in some ways, I recognize that although I am from the community in Appalachia. I am not of that community anymore because I have been changed by the experiences that I've had, and not everyone from there has had those same opportunities. And so I'm very aware of not trying to speak on behalf of that community anymore because I am not the same as it anymore. That doesn't mean that my story and my time spent there is any less valid or important to share, but it means that the perspective I have right now is very different than someone who is living in Owsley County and hasn't left, and I've tried to be very cognizant of that as I've talked about the book and written the book, and, you know, it is a story of my family and some individuals and my path. It is not the only story of Owsley County, and I do not speak for every woman in Appalachia. So the
0: mountains of Appalachia are almost a character, Beauty, but also sometimes the cruel isolation that they cause. And it plays a significant role in your book. And I was wondering if you could talk about
2: that a little bit. Yeah, I think the mountains, they really speak to me at a sort of visceral level. I think they're so beautiful, and there's nothing more beautiful than sort of the mist in a morning when you're driving through the hills and, you know, you just feel like you're the only person in the world out there, sort of on a two lane road snaking around the mountains. But The mountains are also a big obstacle. It is physically hard to get in and out of the mountains. It is physically hard to move people and hard to move goods. And it's one of the challenges for industry there is you have these roads that, you know, are tiny and narrow and winding. And just the prospect of getting from point A to point B is really physically challenging. And so I think there's a little bit of a love-hate relationship there with the mountains. And I feel like that came out in several ways in the book. My mother-in-law
1: is from Pikeville. And so we went, and I'm curious, where is Pikeville in relation to Owsley? East. East.
2: east. Owsley is West. Pikeville is East. Okay. So
1: I had never been to Pikeville. And this was before her father passed away. But we took a trip to Pikeville. And she had told me all these stories about her childhood and how she grew up on Left Fork of Island Creek and, you know, in a holler. And... I I just couldn't even wrap my head around it, you know, having grown up in Louisville. And so we went and visited Papaw's childhood home and to be able to see like literally the mountain was behind the house, you know, Mm -hmm. what I imagined and what it was, was very different. But Mm -hmm. I I felt like it was a good education for me to be able to understand about my mother-in-law and how she grew up and and Papaw and his experience. So I felt like it was very valuable to be able to see that.
2: Yeah, it's amazing to me that Louisville and Kentucky, so now I live in Louisville, and they're not that far apart. It's two hours to drive to Owlesley County. I did not grow up that far away distance-wise from Louisville, but a lot of people think of them as two separate worlds. I think that our state is so interconnected, and Louisville's the economic engine of the entire state, and as goes the state, so goes the fate of Louisville. Yet, Exactly what you said. So many people think of them as different worlds, and they don't have a concept of what Appalachia actually looks like or actually is. And I think it's a good thing to have people throughout our state moving and going to see with their own eyes what different communities are like.
1: And my sister in law had to remind me when I was talking about this. You know, going to the holler, she said, "Well, there are subdivisions in Pikeville," and I was like, "Oh yeah, right." You know, because it's not just one thing; it's a complex place. Mm -hmm. just like most places are. They're not just one thing or another thing.
2: And there are affordable housing complexes in Appalachian communities and all kinds of things. So it's, yeah, I think it's worth going to see with your own eyes just because it's never going to be what you think it is in your head. And I think that that's how you really get to know a community is actually going and spending time there.
0: So what was the process like actually getting your book published?
2: For me, I was lucky enough to have a contract to write the book before I'd actually written it. Oh, wow. Um, And so it was a roundabout way that it ended up happening. That meant I knew that I had the space to sit down and write and that it was going to become a book and that it was going to be out there in the world, which was a really cool thing. And so I got to spend a lot of time thinking about what that process was going to look like before I actually started it. It took about three months to actually write it, again, because when you're writing your family story, you already know about your family story and then the editing process is really the the longest part of it i would say i worked with an amazing editor which i think is so important for memoir because it's someone who's in your head in your life asking you questions like why'd you make that decision and can you tell me more about you know when you say you were really sad about this like i really need you to go deep and tell me like what that actually felt like and it's a really personal thing to work with an editor on a memoir In some ways, I tease my editor, I'm like, you were kind of like my therapist. Um, (laughs) And, you know, I was lucky that I worked with this great team of women to bring this book into being. I always think the business side of books is really interesting. It's something that I never thought about, but the whole designing and marketing and actually getting books made and how you get them on shelves all across America is such an interesting process to me. So I feel like I've learned a lot about the book industry from this process, and it's just such a fascinating and rapidly changing world.
1: So when you started writing this, I mean, because it is a memoir, there's always the potential, you know, you're you're writing about your experience, but other people that have been part of that experience are included in the book. So did you have to convince anybody or talk up what you were trying
2: to do in order to to get buy-in from your family? Everyone in my family was happy to be a part of the book and have their stories told, I'll tell you the weird thing about writing a memoir is it doesn't really occur to you until it's almost out that people will actually read it that are in it. (laughs) Um, And I remember having this moment whenever, you know, the text was actually finalized and the books were actually being printed where I was Mm -hmm. like oh, the people in the book are going to read this soon. <laughs> and luckily, everyone has been really supportive. And I think a lot of folks are like, I'm in a book. You know, they enjoy being in it. I was really nervous about it because I don't think any of us would describe ourselves the same way anyone else would. And I think it's a little bit of an uncomfortable thing to tell your family who you think they are, what you think about them. Um, and in this book, it's meant to be a love letter to the those family members but you just never know if the things that I'm saying I value in them aren't things that uh, characteristics they think they have or it's very different than the way they think about themselves I was nervous I was like well what if they hate it (laughs) yeah Um, then it's I haven't achieved my purpose at all but luckily folks have been really happy with it
1: well I think too I am not the type of person who who likes like sentimental to me for something to be a true appreciation it has to consider that everything is flawed and it's kind of like when somebody dies and then all of a sudden they're a saint it's like come on they they have their flaws and and i feel like that's a truer more honest picture that you're able to appreciate so i think that's the hard part about considering a memoir that sometimes in order to really look at it and show how much you love it you have to sometimes deal with the things that other people don't want to talk about or deal with
2: yeah, it was really interesting to me. And the first draft, that was the exact feedback that I got. I had this group of women that I was very close to read an early draft. And I was like, tell me what you think about it. And they're like, it's just all like rainbows and puppies. You know, No, people don't feel three-dimensional because – Nobody is as fantastic as you say they are, and we want to know who they actually are, and, like, we like these characters enough, and they're not characters, they're people, but in the way they were talking about it, they are characters to them. We like them enough that you can tell us some things about them that really round them out as people, and that's okay, and so learning to trust readers was a big part of the process, too, where it's like, okay, I can actually describe the way things are, describe the way people are, and people will still love these people that I'm trying to honor in this book. Mm-hmm. So tell me about the cover. Is that a picture from your family? It is. So it's my granny and my mom on one side okay. of the frame and then my uncle Dale on the okay. other.
0: Very good. So if you go out and buy this book now you'll know who
2: who the people are. So
0: what was harder writing the book or promoting the
2: book? Honestly, I've had a great time promoting the book. It's fun to hear what other people think about it and have conversations about women and politics and Appalachia and bringing our country together. And I've really enjoyed that part of it. Writing, I mean, I also enjoyed that part. I'm a very extroverted person, so it was a little more isolating than I'm used to my work being. It was a lot of trying to get into a headspace where I was writing and in the writing flow, and I just needed no distractions and would just spend my days typing away furiously listening to bluegrass music in the background. And so I would say that's really the only downside of writing is that you're very much in your head by yourself for long stretches stretches of time.
1: When you were writing, were you just putting your ideas down and then waiting at the end to do your editing? Or did you put stuff down and then go back? within a short period of time and edit as you went?
2: The way I tried to do it is every day I tried to get a chunk of writing done. And so I would start off just what I call like word vomiting and out, just tell the story almost like if I was just talking to someone and then do another pass to clean it up or reorganize it. And then I think that process just kept getting tighter and tighter throughout iterations of the book because then my editor would read it and she would have thoughts about, well, this story goes better here and, you know, we should change the flow this way. And we'd make sort of small structural tweaks from there. Were there things that you either wanted to put
1: in and weren't able to or things that you maybe were hesitant to put in and then your editor was like, give me a story, and you thought, okay, I'm just going to put this out there
2: I think if anything it's been the stories that I've learned about after the text was finalized I feel like maybe once a week I'll be talking to Aunt Ruth on the phone and she'll like tell me another family story or something that's happening in Owsley County and I'll just be like "Ah, I wish I'd known that (laughs) because that would have been a great story that so clearly makes this point or I think it's happened a lot too that people will be like oh, you know, you wrote a book about uh, really great women in Appalachia. You should have talked to, you know, my friend Betty, who did this amazing thing. And I'll be like, I wish I would have known to talk to your friend Betty. And so I think it just drives home the point that there are so many awesome women in Appalachia doing so many awesome things that I probably could have written seven books about them.
0: I think it's really cool that you got to do this. And this is really a gift to your children then about your family members. And it really makes me want to sit down with my family members and just talk to them about family stories. I mean, I still hear stories from my mother and my aunt. They'll sometimes tell my children stories that they never told me. Mm. And I think, how did I not know about that? But I feel like because you were writing a book, you were really more formal about it, I guess, sitting down and, and getting those stories out where I think we all need that excuse to sit down with our families. You're maybe more present.
1: I I know for myself, you know, sometimes my mom will tell me a story that maybe I've heard before or I think I've heard before. And you know how you do with people you love. You just kind of tune them out. I mean, that just happens, especially if it's a story you've heard before. But I think there's a certain amount of you're more present if you're doing it for A a reason. Yeah. Like, book or, you know, you're trying to do a family history or something like that, you know, you're going to pay closer attention and maybe ask better questions.
0: Both Appalachian residents and people from outside Appalachia are going to read this book or have read this book. What do you think someone from the region gets from the book that someone who's reading it who's not from Appalachia gets from it?
2: I've had a lot of women from Appalachia tell me, that they feel pride in the book because I think so often people in Appalachia feel marginalized or they feel like the rest of the world is judging them or looking down on them. And I had this book event in Lexington, Kentucky, and the room was packed of full of women, some of whom I never met, a lot of whom I never met, who had driven from eastern Kentucky to Lexington to be at that event just to tell me how proud they were you know they're like this made me feel proud of my community it made me feel good i'm so glad you wrote it thank you for writing it and that's been a really cool experience is just the way that women who aren't from alsley county and aren't members of my family have really felt like this tells the story of their appalachia so i think for folks in the region i hope it gives them a sense of pride in their communities and in their families and in their own histories For people outside of the region, I think it really, I hope it just complicates their view of Appalachia. Mm.
0: Well, I've bought a copy for my mother that I'm going to give to her for her birthday. Hopefully this will come out after her birthday. (laughs) so I haven't just given away her present, but I think that she (laughs) will really enjoy the book because, like I said, she grew up in Appalachia as well. So do you
1: have any aspirations to to write more, whether it be more memoir-type pieces
2: I'm really interested in the idea of young women in politics, particularly young moms in politics right now. I think it's an interesting time in our history when we're electing more women to office, but not necessarily electing more women of a certain demographic age. I think women are largely told you can run for office either when your kids are grown or before you have kids, and there's still this sense that you can't be a good mother And run for elected office. And that means we're missing a really important perspective in our elected government. And so I have a lot of thoughts about that. And that's something that I'm toying with. You know, is there a way to write a book that's a young woman's guide to politics or a young mom's guide to politics? I've been lucky to be the vice chair of the Kentucky Democratic Party and get to work with a lot of women candidates and work on a lot of campaigns. And so I feel like there's sort of this insider guide that needs to be written to make politics feel more accessible to women.
1: As I'd mentioned to you, I I freelance write. And so I have interviewed people who are in politics. And I think of myself as a fairly well-educated person. But there's a certain mystique for me about how does a person even begin like I don't even know what the first step is and so I feel like if I'm thinking this then I know that that other people are thinking this that maybe the veil needs to come down and women and young people need to have a better understanding of well, what what do you do you know I, I think they see people up on the stage and they almost think that's the first step but there's a lot of steps that come before somebody's up at the podium talking about policy or whatever they believe in
2: Yeah, and I think a lot of folks don't even know how to volunteer on a campaign or what that even means or how you participate in democracy in this different way that I think is really important. I think the more women, the more young moms, just the more people in general, the better for the health of our democracy as a whole. So I think something like that is sort of brewing in the back of my mind, but it's still a half-baked idea at this point. (laughs) So if readers...
0: Uh, would like to find out more about you or follow you on social media are you are you on all those
2: kinds of things yes my author website is www.cassiechambers.com and i'm also on facebook as an author um, under cassie chambers you can follow me on twitter at cassie h chambers
0: awesome well we are going to take a break and when we come back we're going to talk about what we're reading We're here with Cassie Chambers and Carrie. And Carrie, what are you reading? I don't know where I heard about this
1: book. It's called Castaway Poems for Our Time by Naomi Shihab Nye. And she is the Young People's Poet Laureate. Which, oh, yeah. I didn't so, know there was such a thing. I didn't either. Uh, it says it on the cover. Okay. So <laughs> I picked up this book and originally, so Amy and I text each other you know, in advance of when we're recording to say, well, what are you going to talk about to make sure we're not talking about the same thing? And so when I texted her, I said, Oh, I'm reading this book of poetry about trash. And as I got further into the book, I realized that it is about trash. But it's trash on both in a very narrow scale, you know, about actual trash, she goes around and she picks up trash, like she'll walk through her community. And so A lot of the poems are about the different things she she picks up and sort of the unusual things she finds. But there's a much broader story of trash because she has poems about homeless people and about how we treat them like trash or we think of them as disposable things. Some of my favorite poems, I've I've marked a few. One of them, They're called Trash Talk. So it'll be Trash Talk and then a number behind it. And so this one called Trash Talk 929 is about, uh, it starts with a friend says, I'm so tired of men taking the credit. And so the poem goes on to tell the story of a woman in Austin, Texas, who was the first person to plant azaleas in the city. And these azaleas became known around the town and people admired them and This woman told everyone it was her husband's garden. You know, so this is a poem in a book about trash, in quotes. But it's about how we don't give credit where credit's due, which I think that happens with trash. You know, we look at something and we think, oh, it's just trash. Well, it might be really valuable to somebody else. It might have a whole story that we don't know about. There's a lot of good poems in here. I mean, it took me an an afternoon to read this. Would Um, you say it's definitely directed towards young adult? Not necessarily. Um, I mean, there's definitely poems in here that elementary school kids would get and understand. But then there's certain ones, like there's a, a poem that I marked called Taxpayer Money. And so it talks about all the things that taxpayer money goes to pay for. And she ends with it could never be enough. You know, all those things that we sort of take for granted that our tax paying dollars go for. I don't know. So so uh, uh, some of the poems are definitely could be understood and appreciated by younger children. But I, I think it's definitely stuff that, you know, high school students and older adults could really get some insight from. So it sounds
0: pretty cool. Yeah, it is. Are and the in, poems super long?
1: No, they are not super long. I mean, It's uh, 150 pages. And at the back, she actually has some things that you can do with trash, you know, or ways that you can pick up trash, you know, that you can take a walk with somebody and that it sort of makes you feel good to do little things like picking up trash when you see it. It benefits your community and it benefits your mental health and your physical health because you're walking. And so I felt like it was a really unique book and I'm, I'm glad I read it. So...
0: This is the first book of poetry that I think you've talked about. I haven't talked about any since we've been doing the podcast. Is it?
1: I think I've talked about poetry before. Oh, okay.
0: I think. Well, you All well, I was going to say is you don't help- read it very often,
1: do you? No. Oh, I did. I talked about a book called *Under the Mesquite*, and it was about a,
0: a teenager. Okay. Well, My- you've re- you've talked about some books in verse, but I think of that as being a little bit different than a collection of poems. Oh, do you? No. I, okay. It's all poetry. I guess. But I, okay. <laughs> it's all
1: poetry. Yeah. It's all the same. So, yes, I have. But this is a little different because it's not just telling one story that's a narrative arc. Right. This is just a collection of poems that are connected in both large and small ways, if that makes sense. Yes. Yes.
2: Cassie, what have you been reading? <laughs> I am currently almost done with a book called Walkable City by Jeff Speck. Uh, It's really a book kind of about urban design and urban planning, and at its core, it has this premise that walkability is the most important thing in cities, that pretty much all of these benefits that come with a city being walkable, the economic benefits, the health benefits, the way that it makes the community feel connected. And so with that as a starting premise, it's almost this how-to guide for how to make your community more walkable. I'd say the first third is talking about walkability and why it's important and what the research has shown. And then later in the book, it breaks it out into steps and it talks about the importance of You know, you have to look at traffic patterns and the way that you approach cars and the actual physical design of intersections, and you have to beautify and make it feel inviting and make your sidewalks feel like places that people want to be where they feel safe, Um, and you need them to feel green. And, you know, it it has a lot of data. I haven't read a book like this in a while. I have a master's in public health, and I used to read some stuff about built environment back in that program. But when I was writing the memoir, I was largely reading either fictional accounts about Appalachia or sort of more research-based books, nonfiction books about Appalachia. And so this is something very different, but it was recommended to me by a friend who is a big believer in walkability and alternative modes of transportation and the importance of combating climate change. And it's been really interesting. I'm really loving it. And I really like that it has sort of practical ways for folks to think about making their city better. I mean, are there ways that people can, I can't go
1: build a road or or I can't go build a sidewalk. So I guess it's not like practical approaches that
2: individuals could take. I think there are some ways that individuals could make their communities more walkable. One of the things actually going back to your point about trash is when sidewalks are clean, people subconsciously think they're more inviting. And so they're more likely to actually get out and walk on them. And when people are out walking, actually crime goes down because when there are, you know, more eyes around, people are less likely to get into mischief. And then also, you know, it's good for the economy because people spend more money when they're on foot than when they're in cars because you're perusing by and you're like, oh, I'll stop in there and I'll spend some money at this shop. When if you're driving, you just go to where you're going and then turn around and head out. Another interesting thing, they talk about how sidewalk trees are actually associated with increased revenue for businesses because again when it feels sort of inviting and walkable folks get out and they shop and they spend money and so it's a lot of that stuff that's about almost behavioral economics in some ways the way that The world we build subconsciously shapes our behavior, but we can be a part of building that world, you know, by going out and picking up trash and, you know, doing things to beautify the streets that we live on and the commercial corridors that we frequent. And so it's a really interesting book. It's definitely a lot of food for thought.
1: I I get so peeved when I go to the grocery, not just because I'm going to the grocery, that peeves me in general, but they plant these dinky little trees. And I'm like, you know, it would be nice to plant like big trees and give them a little bit more space. I don't know. I just think there's so many ways, relatively inexpensive ways that we could make shopping and so much of what we do more pleasant if we just had some bigger trees.
2: And <laughs> bigger not, trees will save the world. Yeah. And it's not even just a pleasant thing. It's also, you know, in cities you have these heat islands mm. that are really bad for people's health and really just a a problem that we need to address. And trees are one of the best ways to do that. And so, you know, there are all kinds of things that we can do if we make our communities more green. But it's been a lot of fun to read about what other cities are doing and some of the data on this stuff. And um, I'm very much enjoying it.
0: Cool. So I am curious what
2: Appalachian fiction that you have read that you've liked. You said you read some Ooh, it's been so, honestly, I read some on our last vacation. The cool thing about being a writer is the publishing house will send you all kinds of books for free. And I remember just asking my editor, I said, we're going on a trip, send everything you got about Appalachia. And I can't even remember off the top of my head what the books were, but I just remember churning through like five books that I hadn't heard of. And a lot of times when I read things that are close in subject matter, they're about Appalachia. I'm always like, well, I'll never write as good as that. Like, that's really well written. And so I actually stopped doing that the further I got in the process because it was really disheartening.
0: (laughs) Well, one author that I really like, her name's Lee Smith, but she has a book called Fair and Tender Ladies. And it is historical fiction. I think it's set in the early 1900s, and it's set in Appalachia, Virginia. And so if you're out there looking for some Appalachian fiction to read, I would recommend her. Well, Amy, what have you had going on? Well, I'm trying to read my Irish author for March, for St. Patrick's Day. So I read a book called The Wonder by Emma Donahue, and it was published in 2016. Emma Donahue has published at least 15 novels, short story collections, and poetry. She was raised in Ireland, went to university in Dublin, but she spent the last 20 years or so in Canada. And you may recognize her name because she wrote a book that is fairly well known called The Room. It was made into a movie that was nominated for an Oscar. And that is about a woman who was kidnapped and kept in this room for many years. She ends up having a child by her kidnapper. She and her young child escape. And it's sort of about them having to acclimate to civilization again. So I read that book back when it came out but this is another book by her. This one is historical fiction. It's set in the late 1850s in Ireland and it's about an 11 year old girl named Anna O'Donnell and she lives in this small Irish village and her family claims that she hasn't had anything to eat or drink but water for four months and yet she still lives. And the village has decided that it will either prove that this is a hoax or prove that it's a miracle. So they hire two nurses to come and spend two weeks with Anna and observe her 24 hours a day to verify whether she's really getting any sustenance. One of the nurses is an old nun from Dublin. The other one, her name is Elizabeth Wright, and she's really the protagonist of this story. She's a nurse from London who was once one of the Florence Nightingale nurses. We've all probably heard the name Florence Nightingale, but it wasn't until this book that I actually looked her up. And I, for some reason, was associating her with World War I. But actually, she was a British woman who was the pioneer of modern nursing who made her biggest impact during the Crimean War in the early 1850s. And she opened up a nursing school and improved health care for parts of British society. So at this time, to be a Nightingale nurse trained by Florence Nightingale herself was quite the resume builder. And to hire one was basically a nod to scientific credibility. So Elizabeth, or Lib, as she calls herself, travels to Ireland, and we can tell that she's determined to show that this is a hoax. She's sure of it and has no doubts that she can expose it in a day or two. But as the story is written from the point of view of Lib, it becomes obvious that she holds many of the prejudices that the English had at that time about the Irish, that they're backward, that they're superstitious, that they're blinded by their allegiance to the Catholic Church. And the reciprocal is also true. Many of the Irish hold hostility towards Lib because she's English. Many Irish felt that the British actually worsened the starvation of the Irish people during the potato famine because they continue to take Irish resources away to feed their own people and leave the Irish with nothing. So there's this mistrust and misunderstanding between Lib and many of the Irish that she encounters. So in the beginning, Lib is suspicious of Anna. She believes the girl is a con artist who's trying to pass herself off as a Christian martyr, so people will come from far and wide to see her. there's an alm box that's attached to the front of their little house, and so people will come and see her and leave money. Now, the family says that they're donating all that to the poor, to the church. But as the story goes on and Anna's days without food continue, Liv becomes quite fond and attached to Anna, and the story becomes much more complicated. So the subject of religion is really a huge theme in this book. It exhibits how different people experience trauma and find solace in different ways. So Anna's family has gone through the starvation of the potato famine. They've lost children, and yet their Catholic faith is unwavering. Lib has seen the horrors of war in the Crimean War, and she's suffered terrible personal loss. And she thinks, and this is a quote from the book, if the creator can't prevent such abominations, what good is he? So she finds her peace by turning to good nursing practices and and helping others. She believes in what she can see, and Lib doesn't understand a passionate faith. I really enjoyed this book of historical fiction, and I think it brings up some really interesting ideas concerning science and religion, old ways versus new, and how our misunderstandings of the ideas of others outside of our own culture or our tribe, I'm putting tribe in air quotes, so to speak, leads to chasms that can be hard to bridge so it was good
1: it sounds good yeah
0: it sounds really good it was, was really it a pretty fast read very fast I read it in two days cool I
1: love fast reads as we know <laughs> since I keep picking up 800 page books and then putting them down yeah I liked it a lot well when we come back we are going to ask Cassie Chambers her top five We're back with Cassie Chambers and we're going to ask her her top five. You are from Owsley County, Kentucky. If someone was wanting to visit that region of the state, what is the top thing you would tell them to check out and why?
2: There is a state park called Natural Bridge not far from Owsley County. It's close to a place called Red River Gorge that has some of the best rock climbing in the entire world. So I would say go there, enjoy the mountains, hike. It's a really interesting place. It has uh, a cool pizza joint and some really like cute, fun restaurants. It's also very close to mountain communities. So I would say go spend some time, walk around, drive around, and uh, see all the things there is to see out there.
0: There's lots of great little cabin rooms rentals out there you know you can get some that are pretty rustic that look nice though they look like tree houses we've vacationed there or gone on weekend trips there a couple times and that Miguel's pizza that you're talking about is very good
1: I've got a story about Red River Gorge
0: mm-hmm.
1: when I was a kid my family decided that we were going to go to Red River Gorge they brought my grandma and my cousin it was me and my brother and my mom and dad and maybe I don't know it was it felt like a clown car like that's my memory of it And the day we went, it was pouring down rain. I don't know why my family didn't just go, you know what? It's pouring down rain. It might be pouring down rain there. We drove. I don't know where we drove. We never made it to Red River Gorge. Somebody, it might have been me, threw up in the car. Like we were all (laughs) Mm -hmm. on one side of the car because the puke was on the other side. It was like horrible. It was a horrible day trip. We never made it. But. We talk about it all the time. To this day, we talk about the trip to Red River Gorge that never actually happened, you know, because we never made it.
0: That's... You should go back. <laughs> Doesn't everybody have like a horrible family? Well, ours is a horrible, I'm not going to tell the whole story, but it's a horrible family story to Pikes Peak, Colorado, where it's it's going to be like this infamous family story yeah. from now on. Yeah, that, mm-hmm. that's our horrible one. So you were involved with getting women elected to public office. What's the top reason women should consider taking
2: a chance and running for office? Because we still don't have enough women in elected office.
0: There's the easy
2: answer right (laughs) there. (laughs) Um, Even in Kentucky, you know, we have um, more women of both parties serving in elected office than ever before. We're at an all-time high in our state general assembly. But it's still not anywhere close to parity. um, And so, you know, we just need more women to run because – We're actually more than half of the population by a slight amount. uh, We have that like little extra fraction of a percentage point. And so democracy should look like what populations look like, and we need more women in office. Are you involved with Emerge? I am. So Emerge is a program in Kentucky that trains women to run for office and really provides a support system and a network for women. I think, you know, the statistic is you have to ask a woman seven times before she'll agree to run for office. And, you know, you usually don't have to ask a man, they sign, raise their hand and volunteer. And so it really, I think the power of Emerge is that it teaches women how to run for office, it provides a network of support for them when they decide to do so. And then it also encourages them and Gets you having those seven people call you up and say, I really think this is your race, and I will help you, and you know how to do this. And it really lowers a lot of the entry barriers, I think. What is the top thing that you think surprises people about Appalachia? That there's diversity there. I think people have this idea that Appalachia, when they think about it, they think of a white man wearing a Make America Great Again hat, and they think that's the only perspective and the only type of person that lives there. And then when you tell them that there are people of color and there are LGBTQ communities and not everyone is outraged about the fact that there's diversity there and that there are open-minded and accepting people. And of course, it's not as open-minded and as accepting as it should be as a whole, but there are pockets of really great, awesome people doing really great, awesome work. And I think that really surprises a lot of people. Um, And I think it's a really important perspective to make sure people know.
0: In fact, I think that one of the first cities or small towns in the state of Kentucky that passed fair housing ordinance was a small town in Kentucky, and I can't think of the name of it right now, but their mayor is gay, and the town passed a fair housing ordinance so that
2: you couldn't discriminate against renting to somebody because of their sexual orientation. So, yeah. yeah. And there are small towns in Kentucky that the majority of the population is black because of the history of coal mining. Mm. And there's a really problematic history of coal companies sort of stoking racial tensions and whatnot and as ways to sort of break up the solidarity of workers. Um, But there are these really robust communities of color that uh, it's just a really cool thing to see all the diversity in the mountains. I hear that you're a runner.
0: And I'm a non-runner myself, but I've always wanted to run.
2: I haven't.
1: (laughs) Only if somebody's chasing me with a knife, man. But
0: I've never succeeded in talking myself into it long term. What would be your top tip to a non-runner to get them started?
2: I think really good music is key. I think (laughs) you got to find whatever it is that pumps you up and makes you feel like you're like rocky in a fight. And whatever that is, put it on. Or it might be whatever really mellows you out and feels like you're just on cruise control. But figure out the music, at least for me, it's whatever the soundtrack is that gets you going. And then for me, once I get in that space, it's really just a head clearing thing. It's almost like a moving meditation where your mind kind of goes blank. You got your music in the background and you're just like, letting the distance roll past. I really enjoy it. I find it cathartic in that way. Do you have trouble breathing?
1: On the rare occasions where I've tried running, I feel like I'm just just really loud, you know, with the whole breathing thing. Does that ever go away? Like, if you keep doing it, I've never kept doing it long enough to see if the breathing <laughs> part goes away,
2: you know? You know, I um, have not noticed that about my running. You know, I don't know that I've ever felt like I'm gasping loudly, but I probably am and I'm just not aware of it. Um, Maybe I'm
1: just too self conscious to be a runner. No, I
2: whenever I come back from runs sometimes my husband will look at me and be like, You look terrible. (laughs) Um, Which I always appreciate, of course. Have you been a
0: runner for a long time?
2: When I was younger I did more sort of like track and field short distance running and it wasn't until I got older and moved to some new cities and I realized running is a really great social activity because there are running clubs and I signed up to train for a marathon because I was like, oh, I can meet people this way, not realizing that I also had to run a marathon <laughs> as part of that process. But you go out and you spend two hours on a Saturday morning just doing a long run with this group of people all over the city. And it's a really cool and interesting thing to be a part of, you know, this idea that we're going to go out and run 15 miles around the city with just our cell phones and each other's company. And it kind of feels like a little adventure, really. When you look at a map, you're like, we're going to go this far and we're going to just get our water where we get it. It's, um, it's just kind of a fun, I guess, adventure is really the only way to describe it.
0: I have a good friend who moved to uh, Austin, Texas. It used to be when we moved and we had small children, the way you sort of met people was like through your kids, like playgroups or schools or whatever. And her kids had gotten older and she didn't really feel like that was a easy way to meet new people. But she joined a running club and she'd never really been a runner before. And it has completely changed her life. That's sort of how she found her her people now. You know, that's how she made friends in, in Texas. So yeah, I think it's, uh, oh, if you like to run, which I don't. I'm, but. Too, I'm
1: too hung up on the breathing <laughs> part.
0: <laughs> so what is your favorite food
2: dish
1: that reminds you of home and family?
2: So I don't know if this is a thing people have other places, but um, for me, fried apples were such a big part of growing up. And I'm trying to think right now if I've ever had them anywhere outside of Kentucky. I don't think I have, but that, you know, maybe they exist somewhere. But I just, I love fried apples. My grandmother made, we didn't call them fried
0: apples, but they were like cooked apples. She had a special kind of heirloom apple that I, I think it was only in her yard or something, but it made the best cooked apples. Um, So I can relate to what you're saying. For me, my grandmother had a neighbor who was originally from Czechoslovakia, because in the community where she lived, there were a lot of Slavic people who had immigrated because of the coal mines. And she had taught my grandmother how to make stuffed cabbage rolls when she was younger. And so my grandmother would often make stuffed cabbage rolls. And that's something that I loved them. They were so delicious. But it kind of goes back to what you're saying, that there is diversity in a lot of these Appalachian communities, sometimes because of the coal mines or for other reasons. But yeah, that, that's the thing that I remember about my grandmother cooking. Can I chime in with my blind fish? What's, I... what's blind fish? <laughs> okay, so that's
1: a story from my childhood. <laughs> My mother's mother used to call French toast blind fish. Oh. I don't know why she called it blind fish, but that's how my mother grew up referring to French toast as blind fish. So when my mom and dad got married, my mom said one morning, she was like, do you want me to fix you some blind fish? First he said yes, and then he came into the room and he said, what did you just ask me if I want it? So... French toast is blind fish. Now, I don't call it that. I call it French toast. But I can't think of French toast without thinking of my mother and my grandmother calling it blind fish. So did anybody
0: ask them why they call it that?
1: That story has apparently been lost to the ages. I don't know.
0: It's just the family name for it? Just the family name for it.
1: But one time when I was a a kid and I went fishing with a friend, I did get a fish and pluck its eyes out. And (laughs) my mom served it to one of their friends who made fun of her for... Serving blind for fish. serving blind fish, she actually served him blind fish. So there you go. There's my family history there, and that's why I'm not writing a memoir. <laughs> <laughs> well, Cassie, thank you so much for being on Perks of Being a Book Lover. We really appreciate you coming and talking about your book. Thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun.
0: Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.